How long does it take to recover from a con? Asking for a friend. Myself. Uh, so long. It's felt like this week has been forever. Uh, the con was forever. This week was forever. All time is forever. It doesn't end. It is unceasing. Much like Aaron when he decides to text in the middle of our podcast, it is unending. I'm sorry. I'm shit-talking uh, my fantasy league right now. Oh, that's right. It's football time. Well, maybe not in Tennessee, because I don't know where the UT volunteers were last weekend. Ooh, yeah, they weren't on that field. Where were they? Perhaps we'll never know. No, Aaron, we're, we can't talk about football. We're a bunch of nerds. We can't talk about football. You can't be both? I, you know, whenever we go to con and we see everyone there for whatever Chick-fil-A Hardee's Fruit of the Month Bowl is going on there, we see them in their jerseys and they see us in our costumes and we just look at each other across the void and think of the other, what in the world are you doing here, you weirdo? It's the weirdest mix or the weirdest phenomenon that you could ever have. You would have one set of group or sorry, one group of people that are dressed head to toe with face paint and uh, are getting weird looks from the normies. And then you have the other group of people that are dressed head to toe with face paint who are getting weird looks from the normies. And maybe we're not so different, you and I. I feel like a little bit of sports slamming got crept into con with all the Spartans and Viking drama that went on. Oh, like the, the unofficial... Uh, quote-unquote official group for Dragon Con even commented on that, and they're like, wow, that was intensely nerdy. Yeah, just a lot of of white buff dudes yelling at each other, which always makes me a bit nervous. There were some some very buff black dudes. I saw a very buff uh, Indian dude doing uh, Aladdin. uh, Gave it... Oh, and let's not forget the ladies. There were some very well-built ladies and my god get it sister they weren't allowed to be spartans though were they the whole thing about spartans is that they're all men oh well no no i'm not talking about sorry i wasn't talking about spartans i was talking about other cosplayers (laughs) oh so the theme dragon con 2019 get swole get swole we didn't get swole no we were not swole our our our, uh fellow viking Derek was swole Mm mm-hmm Derek was swole enough to go shirtless uh but i got rid of all my midriff bearing outfits and aaron embraced his belly to become peter b parker yeah i um found the best excuse to wear pajamas on the last day and it worked for the most part yeah i got to wear my pajamas on the last day and that was very comforting I, uh, that jacket was not as hot as I was expecting it to be. I, remember, I think I wore it for most of the day. Yeah, Aaron has to always get rain slickers. He can't ever get the coat that is actually what the character wears. It has to be always a rain slicker. He does not do any other kind. I actually might be wearing that rain slicker more often because like, m- my other rain jackets, if I sweat in it, the water is just trapped inside. Whereas with this one, I don't feel like that happened and I know I sweat sweated in it so i'm curious to see what happened what's gonna happen disgusting aaron everyone knows that you don't sweat if you're a podcaster (laughs) we live in beautiful shiny bubbles behind our microphones yes yes immaculate as always as we don't sit in our pjs or anything like that absolutely never we dress in full three-piece suits when we record and nothing less yes yes quite quite (laughs) sorry my ass got a little tight yes yes i just visited the haberdashery I gotta shine up my monocle. <laughs> Didn't we have a talk about monocles at con? What we're we talking about that you, if you must, did, I wasn't there. We you must have to have such built up jacked muscles in your eyebrow to hold a monocle in place. And in the the high enough cheekbones too. So it's it's got to be like a you got to have Benedict Cumberbatch face to hold a monocle. <laughs> you got to be a sharp angle boy. Sharp angle boy. Speaking of sharp angle boys. She's Elizabeth. <laughs> and he's Aaron. And, and we're, we're married to, to the, the idea. idea. Were you just afraid to let the conversation go on naturally? Because I am not a sharp-angled boy, mister. No, you're not. I am a sharp-angled man. <laughs> but yes, we're back. And as with all of our really fabulous episodes, we're going to nitpick down to the bone today because we are comparing and contrasting again. We Ooh. are talking about Howl's Moving Castle. Both... The book by Diana Wynne-Jones and the movie by Hayao Miyazaki. 
there are few properties quite like this one where original adaptation are really quite different in terms of most core elements and yet both properties remain intensely respected and liked and it is possible to like both of them in a way that a Disney live-action remake can never be because it's always just a copy. This one deviates a ton and I think there's gonna be a lot to talk about. Aaron was very worried. He was afraid that we were just gonna be very glowing and recommending of the movie without much to say. But it's completely different from the book and I even have a point-by-point breakdown that we can go (laughs) to talk about it because a lot of this is just gonna be Aaron reacting to it. Yeah, before we get into that, why don't we go ahead and do the plug party? Yes, good idea, Aaron. You can find us on Facebook at Married to the Idea. Email us at MarriedToTheIdeaReviews at gmail.com. And if you want to check out our website, MarriedToTheIdea.Weebly.com, you'll also find links not only for all of our seasons, but also our Patreon page, Patreon.com slash MarriedToTheIdea, where you can throw us some money to get a shout-out, join in on the Sponsor Dome, or just let us know that we're doing a good, good job by throwing dollar signs in our face. Dollar dollar bills, yo. Dollar bills, yo. Anyways, Howl's Moving Castle. Howl's Moving Castle. What a great movie. It's I, so, oh, it's my comfort movie, and I have to give a how? shout out. You've only seen it twice. No, 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 absolutely not. No, I have to give a shout out to Jenny because she is the person who first introduced me to a Hayao Miyazaki movie and the first person to show me Howl's Moving Castle. Which one was your first Miyazaki movie? I, I that's that's a question that I always ask people. I believe it was Whispers of the Heart, which is really that, Jenny. That was your first one. That was Jenny's first movie that she decided to show me, and she told me that it would be so different than most of the other things he does. Japanese animation and culture was and still remains a mystery to me much today. There are many things about storytelling and the way that plot progresses in Japanese culture and pop culture that still doesn't really um, make sense to me as a Western film viewer and media viewer. Things like having um, pauses, breaths, quiet moments, a lot of breathing, so much recorded breathing. Huh? Yeah. What? Mm-hmm. Not how? even... No. How? 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 You're not even Sophie. giving it justice. <laughs> there's there's different things that they use and focus on. And that's not to say that I don't like it. It's just still very foreign to me. <laughs> but unch. <laughs> uh, which is strange because uh, I, I didn't grow up on anime, but I've been I've been exposed to anime since I was a kid. Uh, with Sailor Moon and Dragon Ball Z, the, the stereotypical animes that you kind of grow up with if you were are in my age range. Our friend group has introduced a bunch of different animes to me and none of them have stuck with me. None of them have been like, I need to see how that continues. And there are some really, really good animes out there. And I mean, granted, some of the older ones don't hold up as well. Um, you know, uh, me and uh, another friend of ours are trying to push you towards Sailor Moon a little bit. <laughs> but the thing is, is some of the some of the shows that you've watched uh, recently, as in Steven Universe, She-Ra, Hilda, I would say has influences from uh, anime. But the most egregious example is Avatar. Avatar is the best case scenario of westernized anime. There is some awful westernized animes out there, some god-awful ones, but Avatar The Last Airbender is the best one. The idea of Western, uh, Eastern philosophy making its way into Western properties, I'm totally fine with. The idea of nature being a much more overarching and powerful force, I think is really cool, and I like to see that, um, especially with Miyazaki. He's uniquely connected to that idea of nature being supremely important to our world and to our development. Yeah, you want to talk about adult themes in a kid's movie. Spirited Away is one of the more adult ones because it's almost an allegory for being sold into the sex uh, trade. My neighbor Totoro is kidnapping or girls getting lost. People have uh, made the posterizations that some of these movies are 
allegories for things like Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro that don't they have a, a plot but they don't have an overarching plot. I think that depends what you mean by plot. Totoro is definitely a slice of life movie, but yeah. that's enough for again because it's such a foreign concept to me that seems like a totally natural thing for the Japanese to make a movie about. That's us, but we're not the only ones to have made that thought process and Miyazaki himself hasn't has stated that some of these characters are allegories he has had more adult themes or adult movies princess mononoke is very adult like very gory very um edgy uh, especially for an anime or an animation movie he was not afraid to make those kind of movies but his more popular ones are movies more for families but then when you go too much like ponyo i didn't care for it um I did like the mother character with how insane she was and, and the fact that the American version had a... Uh... Oh, you can do it, babe. It's Tina Fey. Tina Fey. I was a little, I kept saying Amy Poehler in my head. I can't let you near the computer. If you start pulling stuff up, we're never going to get into the comparisons. Right. So <laughs> Whispers of the Heart is actually probably the most slice of life, to go back to the original point that I asked, uh, slice of life one that he has because there is no plot <laughs> it's just this girl discovers this shop and then that's it and she does uh, sing country road and, and she sings country road that's that's it i mean so i've only watched it the one time I, and i watched it i think i was there when you watched it yeah that was my turning point i learned about the difference between subs and dubs and <laughs> you filthy blood i i i say that with the the utmost uh grin and i am a filthy pleb myself i have to watch subs <laughs> i really do enjoy the dubs though so let's walk Sorry. it i said subs i meant dubs. yeah that's what i was bad. wondering like what did you mean by that uh yeah because in whispers of the heart there's a total difference in the end of the movie, depending on whether you hear it dubbed or hear it subbed. One is, will you marry me? One is, will you move in with me? Completely different ending based on whether you hear sub or dub. And that was like, well, that's a huge difference. Yes, it's definitely important to know both sides. But walking it into Howl's Moving Castle, that was the second Miyazaki film that I watched. And I had already read Howl's Moving Castle, so I was interested to see. And I fell in love with Christian Bale as Howl. It's such perfect casting. He might be a bit of a dick in real life. No, he pr- he absolutely is a dick in real life. But, but he <laughs> he is a fantastic actor, especially with his voice. It was so soft and powerful. He did a really, really good job. He watched uh, Spirited Away and basically told his agent, or it was like, the next movie that comes out, I want to do a voice. And they're like, okay, do you want to be the main voice? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. Or, I'm sorry, what the fuck are you doing? Good for you. Uh, to answer the question that you didn't a- ask me. Oh, Aaron, what was your first Miyazaki movie? Uh, my first one was actually Kiki's Delivery Service, which was adorable. I watched it on Cartoon Network uh, because they were playing some of those movies because they also played Castle in the Sky. So we're going to get a little bit into spoiler territory, but first let's talk about just the overarching plot. In both stories, there is a girl named Sophie who works in a hat shop with her family, and she is cursed by the Witch of the Waste, who is this big bad, into becoming an old woman. Can we talk about how they represent her in that like that that box thing oh we can talk about her for days when cursed she decides well i'm not gonna let this stop me i'm gonna go out and find an adventure and she does by going to the eponymous moving castle which is the residence of howl the wizard in the book and in the movie it's said that he eats young girls hearts which becomes more of a euphemism for he's a player, he's a ladies' man. But after that, it kind of gets wildly divergent, increasingly so. Bit by bit, there are just chunks that kind of break down how Sophie's character is completely different, how Howell's character is completely different, how their relationship is completely different, the Witch of the Waste, Sophie's family. There's, again, point by point by point, it gets so different Um, There are a few things that remain totally integral and true and beautiful, though. Uh, One of those is Calcifer, played by the beautiful Billy Crystal, perfectly. 
perfectly. And he is same in both, to be quite honest. Uh, the second thing is the <laughs> the post-bathroom meltdown, the green slime incident. Exactly the same. If you're like me, well, no, you're not like me. If you're like Aaron, you probably saw the movie and really like liked, you. probably liked the movie, probably never heard of the book. Probably haven't read the book. I've I I had heard of the book after I watched the movie, um, but I did not. I've never read the book. Okay, so let's go through. These are all crazy big differences, and the reason why isn't to nitpick and say one did it better or worse. It's literally to say that the adaptation completely ran different ways and how it made a totally different movie, and if that was the right call for this particular story. Um, so let's start with like the very very beginning. We're introduced to Sophie. She's this girl working in a hat shop under her mother, uh, stepmother, as it turns out. And, yeah, see, you're already shaking your head and like, what? Yeah, so Sophie is the eldest of three girls. Father, stepmother, married. Father dies, stepmother realizes, oh, I can't afford to keep all of you girls on, so I'm actually going to send you off to work on your traits. And Sophie's the eldest, and as the eldest, feels like nothing's ever going to happen to her, because the eldest always goes out and fails at finding her fortune. It's always the youngest sister who does really great and powerful things. So she feels like she's already written out of her own story just by virtue of being the eldest daughter. Actually, Diana Wynne-Jones kind of wrote the book about that idea, that she felt like she couldn't do anything special, impressive, being the eldest child. And this is kind of like, no, no matter who you are, you can go off and do an amazing thing. So you have a particular fondness for not only this character, but for this story. No, honestly, for me, I never had that eldest child problem. I've never felt like being the eldest child means I can't do anything I want to do. I feel uniquely privileged as eldest child to do anything I set my mind to. So I had completely different upbringing than that. (laughs) So the, uh, (laughs) the stepmother sends all these girls off. But it turns out that the two daughters, uh, the two sisters, want different lives. The girl that she sends off to go work at the bakery, she actually wants to be a magician. And the girl that gets sent off to be work as an apprentice as a magician, she just wants to go and work at the bakery. So one month in, the girl who's been training as an apprentice as, as this witch goes to visit the other sister. The two of them take a potion, swap places, and go back and get exactly what they want. That, just, that, makes, no, that doesn't make sense. So this like, starts a whole... I cut off all of my hair to give you a pocket, uh, your pocket watch, a good gold chain. I sold my pocket watch to give you a nice brush for your hair. Oh, no! This isn't good to the magic. It just means they both get exactly what they want now. They both get to do what they want to do. And it's also heavily hinted that the stepmother isn't cruel or mean. She just is profiting off of Sophie's hard work and, you know, gadding about and just not the best person, not paying her fair. Just just not doing a very good job at this is whole thing. Is she still the owner of the shop in the book, too? Mm-hmm. Okay, so why does Sophie still work for the shop if the mother is the one that's paying for her? So her stepmother isn't paying her. She's just working there because that's what she should probably do as eldest. That's what her lot in life is. She's exceedingly plain and she doesn't have a future because, again, eldest child can't go do anything, so may as well work in the hat shop. So it's it's a different story arc for Sophie. Um, but we'll, the whole two sisters turns out to be part of this convoluted plot about uh, the wizard Solomon and about Prince Justin, who's missing this whole time, and Howl. And there's a complicated bunch of love twists and triangles that I'll try to unravel as we get further and further into this. Um, but they never really touch on Sophie having this feeling that she can't do more in the movie. They pretty much think that, oh, I'm just timid. I'm timid and that's why I don't do anything as opposed to in the book where it's much more of these are just the circumstances of my life. I I kind of have to do this. Hmm. So it's, it's a start. Okay. Well, I mean, we can give a full plot synopsis, but I mean, at this point, if you've not watched this movie, we highly recommend that you watch it. It is absolutely visually gorgeous. It is it is a treat for the eye. Miyazaki has a way with colors that no other animator does. The closest animation studio that I've seen to match his color palettes um, is the animation studio behind like Summer Wars, The Boy and the Beast, the that company. Um, the same ones that did the Digimon movie. That's why the Digimon movie 
it looks good, but the story is kind of meh. I'm still a, a fan of it, but you know, whatever. Um, Mia's, but Miyazaki has a way with not only color, but goddamn with animation. Just the flow of everything that, when it's meant to flow proper, it flows overly properly. I know that's not good grammar, but I don't care. He just does such a great job. He also does food porn really well. Oh! Every food in a Miyazaki movie, all the food always looks amazing. God damn you, Miyazaki. It's always so I delicious. Didn't, I've never wanted to eat, like, just straight, like, bacon strips and steak and eggs and 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 bread more than I did when I watched this movie. Like, that good, oh, good bread. Great. Oh, that good, good bread. We highly, and it's it's a great family movie. Um, it gets a little intense at times. Um, there's some there is some war scenes, so it may not be good for like younger children. Like I would say below maybe five or six. Um, but other older than that, it might bring up some tougher questions for you as parents. But still, would recommend it for anyone above that, like above like child age, like if you're into your teens or whatever, first off, why are you listening to our podcast? <laughs> uh, we talk about some really weird stuff on here. Second off, it is very much worthwhile. If you like anime at all, if you like animation at all, this movie is worthwhile. Spirited Away was the first movie that really brought Miyazaki to the national or sorry international world stage this movie kept him there he had a couple other good movies after this but these two movies are like his bread and butter these this one and spirited away are like the quintessential Miyazaki movies Totoro was his first big one and everyone's like oh Totoro is the best I liked Totoro Totoro is slow this one has a much better pace. Um, and Spirit Away, I would say, is kind of in between. So, go watch this. And I can see you staring daggers into me. So, go on. It's not daggers. I I don't think we could say anything more about how awesome Miyazaki is that hasn't been said before. If you weren't going to watch it, we certainly aren't going to convince you. I'll do my best to try, though. <laughs> well, then, let's talk about something that I know you want to talk about. The Witch of the Waste. I hated this character the first time I watched this movie. I did not understand why the hell she had a problem with Sophie. I did not understand what the hell was going on. I hated the uh, the over-exaggeration of her body. I hated her. I, I could not stand her. Rewatching it uh, recently huge huge appreciation for this character not for her choices or her actions still don't 100 percent understand why she curses sophie in the first place but we're gonna get to that yeah um but the appreciation that i have for his imagination of putting this like like liquid form of a person inside this little box is so cool and she then- has such presence Miyazaki chooses to highlight her presence physically with actual physical weight and then uh so she is she is like this big presence and she floats and she flies but she's also like liquid and she's uh and like at the beginning of the movie and she starts very big and grandiose and over the course of time she becomes smaller and smaller and smaller because she has to go through this ritual uh she has to walk up these stairs and she barely makes it up she basically pours herself on that the top stair stair. scene that stair scene is so funny oh, so good it's and it's so indicative of these characters but she like pours herself onto this top step and then finally like pours herself into this chair and i keep using that um she pours she yeah, pours she... it's the best way because she's like liquid a lot of Miyazaki's things is he loves to liquefy limbs and bodies and stuff like that. It brings an ethereal and otherworldliness to these characters, especially if it's kind of a minion character. They like their bones almost look like they would crack and move in the wrong direction, but they're also still liquid at the same time. Oh so. yeah, it's so creepy. But then when she loses like all her powers, she looks nothing like what she originally did. She looks like a mix between your grandmother and my grandmother. Yeah, and she 
fails to become the big bad, instead turning to a character that does not exist in the book or is rather an amalgamation of several different characters. Really? There's, there's so much different. Like, I had forgotten because they're both too good. They're both so good, both parts, book and movie. I had forgotten that they were completely different properties entirely. <laughs> so the Witch of the Waste is the big bad of this book. She curses Sophie because it turns out Sophie is magic that she's been yeah. doing magic this whole time the Spoilers. movie movie no movie absolutely not she's she's kind of... and compassionate and she has the ability to break her own curse and to help Hal, but she is not magical. In the books, she talks to the hats as she makes them. Talking to the hats gives them life. The hats start to do things for the people that buy them that shouldn't in all properties begin. Like you, oh, hat, honey, you're going to have to marry into money. You are too fancy. And the person who wears it ends up marrying a duke. Or, oh, this hat belongs to someone who is looking for adventure, and that person ends up going on a quest to a mountain. Um, they play around with this because uh, one of the IMDb things is they actually do play around with this in the movie. It's hinted at, and there's a couple times they kind of toe the line, but they never outright say that she is magical. I will agree with that. She is one of those ones that if you watch it with that mindset, you can see it, but if you don't, if you don't think about you it at all, know. you would not know. Yeah. yeah. So the witch because curses there's... her because she's a potential threat because she is wronged her with her magic that she doesn't know, even know she has. And then the bigger overarching big bad problem is that in the book, the war hasn't happened yet. War is looming. The prince is missing. The king is going to start a war to get his brother back. And so that is why Hal has to go and find Prince Justin. As it turns out, the Witch of the Waste cursed Howl and is doing her best to enact this curse. He starts enacting different parts of the curse without his knowledge or realization before finally turning to this big thing where she is taking parts of all these powerful men, like physical body parts. She takes like body parts from Prince Justin and body parts from the wizard Solomon, who also went disappearing looking for Prince Justin. She's just been collecting parts of men waiting for Howl to put his head on the body of this amalgamation thing to have the perfect person to rule the world by her side. It's so weird and trippy and it leads again into that weird love crazy loop dupes that we're gonna try and break down earlier but uh that turnip head scarecrow that's chasing her around uh yeah, that is part of uh prince justin the dog that's following her around that's part of the wizard solomon all of these beings uh... are losing parts of their humanity to make this thing for the witch of the waste who was scorned by hell before and now must have him as her own in the end turns out she's being controlled by her own fire demon who took her over whereas calcifer and Hal have like this symbiotic relationship yeah. she lost out to this fire demon ages ago and it's been controlling her and puppeting her from the inside wow it's okay totally well, different i tell you what let's <laughs> um before we jump into that let's go into the sponsor down so the reigning champ so far is Audible. Uh, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com slash idea and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash idea to get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Our recommendation for or the Audible this week is Miyazaki World, A Life in Arts by Susan Napier, also narrated by Susan Napier. It's uh, about 10 hours, so uh, you definitely be getting the your bang, bang for your buck. If you choose that as your free title. And if you're interested in learning more about the book after our podcast and the different differences, of course, How's Moving Castle is also available to listen to. In both the abridged and unabridged versions. So if you really want to get dive deep into these uh, changes or, or rather these tangled webs that they have woven, 
you can definitely dive into that. Our uh, challenging the, sponsor cha- challenging is sponsor. going to be the Dragon Con Swag and Seek. Uh, we have never done Swag and Seek on a full scale like this before at Dragon Con. Yes, usually we're a bunch of old fuddy duddies and we go to bed by nine. But <laughs> this year we tried to experience everything. We went dancing, we checked out a bunch of uh, gaming tables that we hadn't done. We but the, play D&D uh, with the Adventures League. It was so much fun. But the biggest thing that was different was the Swag and Seek, where all these different creators come together, make a bunch of stuff to trade and give away to other people who are seeking fun things to find. Whether that's little miniature paintings or ribbons to add to your tags, necklaces, stickers, patches, buttons, you name it, someone made a cool little thing and gave it to you for free. People knitted dice bags. People painted Pokemon teams uh, from Pokemon Go on little canvases. People uh, made the carpet from the Marriott, which is a big thing if you've never been to Dragon Con. On, uh, they've, they've done stuff with that carpet in a hundred different ways. You have your badge. They made ribbons upon ribbons upon ribbons. It was very cool to be part of a community that was interested in just giving away their treasure it wasn't even just giving it away it was making it into a game um or like a hey i have this thing i want to give it to you if you want to give something back to me feel free in like there was a few different meetups that we got to do we got to meet a bunch of people um i uh, i got to make a bunch of terrible jokes at one point <laughs> it was awesome oh aaron you do that all day every day all day every day baby Pun life. Uh, so it was it was so much fun. And I'm looking forward to it for next year. I'm already thinking about things I can give away. Um, and the I really hope we can actually make it to one of the panels because I think they talk about how it got started. And it's just, it was a ton of fun. I think I may have actually met the person who created it at one point. So, uh, yes, our... Uh, uh, challenger this week is the Dragon Con Swag and Seek. Now there are other groups out there like this for other cons. So if you don't, if you're not able to do Dragon Con, um, I would suggest. But you want to do something like this, I would suggest reaching out to them and seeing if they have other cons like a uh, Hypercon or the um, the Wizard Con. I'm sure they do stuff like that. There are people who do this on cruises. Speaking of which, we're about to go on one, but. Uh, you know, there are people who who literally will do this for cruises. So that's that's a lot of fun. So Well, I appreciate finally getting my letter to Hogwarts. I always knew I deserved it, and thank you to the swagger who made that for me. So I think the reigning champ still remains uh, victorious, but uh, we appreciate the competitor stepping in. Oh, it's good. Uh, competition is the whetstone upon which society grows. Okay. <laughs> All right. We got to talk main characters here. We got to talk Hal and Sophie. Because Hal and Sophie are super... So, gosh, how, how do I even describe it? Okay. So, first off, Hal isn't from this universe. Uh, you know the black button on the door where Hal goes? So, in the movie, the war is happening currently. Because Miyazaki is really into that whole wartime imagery. So, Hal goes through as this giant bird to help stop this war. He pretends he's a coward, but he's actually not. The Howl in the book would run away from war as far as his legs would carry and would never even dream of jumping in on that and spends all of his time gadding about the hills with his guitar trying to pick up women. That is literally all he does the entire book. But the black spot in the book takes us to Wales. 1980s Wales, here, in our world. Uh, I'm I'm sorry. <gasps> uh, they say that in the IMDb trivia. I'm Aaron, sorry. that's the big. I was, Aaron. I have been building to that. That was going to be the big twist. I'm sorry. I no. They. I I wish they had emphasized that more in the movie because that's a really big twist. That's a huge twist. He's yeah. he's he's Hal Jenkins. He's, he's literally a, a kid who wears rugby jerseys from Wales who got a PhD in studying spells and so found a portal to our to this world. He, I mean, but how does he actually do magic? Is it because the universe is he's able to tap into it? Like, literally, he studied spells, and studying it was so much that when he found this dimension portal, he was able to actually learn how to do so spells So what you're saying is world. he was a giant nerd, yep. and then he came to this universe and was able to be such a nerd that he could do spells absolutely absolutely he was okay 
still fanciful, still crazy womanizer, but yeah, he's actually a kid from Wales. So he's... <laughs> he's a milady guy. Literally, they all go through the black door in the middle of this uh, to go see Hal, uh, Hal's family. And Sophie's just curious, like, what does the word rugby mean? Because it's on the back of his shirt that he's wearing now. And they're all wearing these weird pants, and she doesn't understand the material that they're made of. And, like, the more she talks, like, oh, my God, we're in present-day England. Like, oh, my God, that's what's happening. And, they, and there's, like, a TV, and they're describing the TV, and the kids walking by, and the cars driving down the road, and all this stuff. It's like... Oh my gosh, this, there, the, our world exists in this world. I did not see that coming. And it has more to do with uh, the Witch of the Waste fire demon and the spell and curse that Hal was under. Um, the Witch of the Waste actually has some pretty terrifying forms. Her and Hal duke it out a lot in the sky and they turn into just like these giant flaming smoke cats that chase each other around the world. It's, it's all very big and grandiose in a way we don't get to see quite so much in the movie. Even though Miyazaki does like to make larger-than-life animals, because Hal does turn into a uh, a giant bird, which at is one super point. cool, just so cool. <laughs> and the the dream sequence when she goes into like the hidey hole kind of thing, and he like rumbles at her, he's like, "You can't even take care of that curse on you." Like that was kind of a really cool part. Mm-hmm. And it again adds to Sophie's character learning to you know be bolder, stand up for herself. There's this interesting thing about okay, so Sophie in the book it's implied that Hal immediately knows that she's under a curse. He doesn't save her from these rape guards in the <laughs> book. Literally, she's walking through the square and this really nice gentleman comes up and says hey oh i'm I'm sorry i didn't mean to scare you do you want to like go get a drink and she's like no no thank you i'm, I'm just i'm just off to see my sister and he's like okay have a good day and walks away and it turns out that was Hal. and sophie's more mortified that she see that such a grand gentleman saw her and she's like oh gosh no please don't stay away from me so we don't have that fun like flying scene which I think is super cute and again it makes real sense when you throw time travel again Sophie doesn't time travel back to the past to figure out about Calcifer and Hal that just does not happen in the book so in the movie it's nice because it's a call like oh I know who you are I'll figure it out but in the book Hal knows immediately that she's under a spell because he's a freaking wizard of course he can tell that she's under a spell and it's implied that he's been trying everything in his power to take the spell off of her as the book goes on but she's just so stubborn and views herself as such an old woman that she's actively resisting the spell being lifted off of her well in the movie she says multiple times like oh, I'm too old for this and I, an old woman, you can't expect an old woman to do this. And she just says so many times, it's like, I'm an old woman. Like, no, you're not. You're under a, cur- a curse, a spell. Like, you could be fighting this. And it's funny because whenever she does fight it, she immediately turns into back into a young woman just with gray hair. Yeah, exactly. And I think there's something interesting about the twist Sophie is just like, they, they try to say that, that she's just like this crazy homewrecker. She comes in with her broom and just stirs up trouble. But it's more that she's a neat freak and she's like, well, if I'm here, I may as well clean. In the book, it's very much, I am so angry, I'm going to literally spotlessly clean this house or die trying. I'm just going to get my anger out by hitting the cobwebs and sweeping all the dust out. And she just does not give two shits what anyone thinks about her. Total old woman style. Which is really strange because, like, I I can see it a little bit for a British side of things, but that is such a Japanese thing to do, like, to, like, literally clear out the entire house and just, like, clean. Every Miyazaki cleaning montage gives me hope that one day my house could do that. (laughs) Or the gardening. Like, I could do that. I could absolutely prepare meals to be beautiful that way. And you want to talk about food porn, field porn. Mm. Oh my god. The fields of flowers. The Just fields. Just like landscapes. The clouds rolling by. Oh. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, man. But I think they did Sophie well because Emily Mortimer, who's her voice. Young voice or old voice? Young voice. Uh, the old voice, I don't I don't remember off the top of my head who that is. I do appreciate a movie whose main character for most of the movie is an old woman. Because yeah. that's just not the protagonist usually. Even though she's under a spell, it's still 
we see her most of the time. Most of the time, it's this old lady. <laughs> yeah, and it and the old lady. I, I think the old lady has more spark in her than the uh, the young Sophie. But the young Sophie does things a little bit better than the old Sophie um, or Grandma Sophie, as they like to call her sometimes. There's pros and cons to each side of the the cursed Sophie, if you will. I personally liked old Sophie a little bit more because she, I don't know, she seemed more spunky. But young Sophie was able to show the love, the caring of Hal a little bit more. Plus, I think old Sophie did so well because she embraced being old pretty much immediately. Like, huh, well, I guess this is life now. And I was already old and plain, so may as well be old on the outside like I am on the inside. She kind of just, like, embraces oldness really, really fast. Like, okay, that's sure. All right. I'm old now. I'm old now. I don't have to give two shits what anyone thinks of me anymore. Huzzah. Yeah, and the movie does a great job of just kind of rolling with it and not, like, stop making the movie crash to a halt like where some movies do when they kind of transplant them in age like 13 going on 30 or something like that it's a lot of times whenever that happens the movie comes to a screeching halt for a moment and then because they fish out of water at the whole time but this way it's more like all right may as well boy you know at least it could be worse you could be sick but you're hale and a hearty old woman as far as i can tell so good on me we've got to talk about the relationship though because how's uh what would their what would their name be Saul. Hofi? Halfie. Halfie? Halfie. The Halfie in the books is... Grandma, Grandma Hal. Could, oh, I do like that. Could not be more different than the movie. I adore their movie couple chemistry. I adore that Hal comes in and is like, you got Calsford to do something? Well, that's pretty impressive. Uh, and is still just in his own head, doing his own thing, saying, nope, don't go in here. You don't get to clean that yet. I'm, I'm, that's my room. I like it messy. And uh, But realizing that she has all of these skills and traits, making sure that when they move the castle, they make a flower shop that makes her happy because she wants to sell flowers instead of hats. The beautiful field that they have, just all these nice things as more and more. He clearly knows that she's under a curse and who she really is and is because he knows from her traveling back in time to see him, he knows who she is and she he's trying to show her that he can be more and isn't just a devourer of young women's hearts. But in the book, they bicker all the time. They are always fighting. Never once are they saying kind things to each other. They're always giving each other backhanded compliments. It's like every 90s rom-com ever. They have to hate each other before they like each other. It's completely different. And even when they get together and they break the curse and they're staying in front of each other and uh, <laughs> she says uh, something about, oh, you know, your hair is all natural. Unlike some people clearly calling out Hal for dyeing his hair. And he's like, you know, personally, I've never seen people really put stock in things being natural. And she realized that while he's changed, he's still very much himself. And it's they're clearly in love. It's clearly not like a mean, petty sort of thing. But they are the kind of couple who are always fighting and, and, and bantering with each other and one-upping each other. That's just how they do. Like, will you stop it, you interminable old woman? I'm trying to keep my room the way it is. You're interminable. I have to clean this house because you keep it a dirty pigsty. Like, it's it's completely wackadoodle bonkers, totally different. And I cannot get with them getting together in the end because I still find him to be an unmitigated ass and her to be a nosy busybody. But, boy, do they like each other a lot. <laughs> I, I like the the couple in the in the movie as well. It's a little too animeistic at times. Like, oh hell, oh Sophie, oh hell, oh Sophie. That's just that's kind of Miyazaki writing a couple basically, and they he does it for other couples, and he does that almost in every movie. But you kind of can't avoid that in anime sometimes. Sometimes it can be avoided, and that's when it elevates it a little bit more. But this one, it elevates it in so many other areas. This one area where it's a little bit lower, other things are fine. But let's talk about some of these side characters before we get on to our final points. Because uh, Markle was adorable. Who is Michael and a teenager. Really? Yeah. 
man, because he he was he was done pretty well by a very young young Josh Hutcherson. Really, who everyone gives him crap for Hunger Games. This guy, he's done he, a bunch of stuff. He's done so much. Like I remember when he did Zathura back in the day. And it was so funny because the big twist was that the uh, astronaut was actually him in, like, the future, but, like, came back through a wormhole or whatever. And Kristen Stewart was, like, in love with him for a hot minute. And uh, and he made, and, like, that char- his character made jokes about it for a little while. But he's, also, he's done some other things. And then, of course, the god-awful uh, Bridge to Terabithia. Which, in all honesty, he didn't do bad. It's just the story was bad. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's, it's a poor adaptation. But his that scene with him and his dad and him breaking down is just a oh, beautiful piece of acting for both of them. And then, of course, now he's doing that this new series, Future Man. Weirdly good. <laughs> That's the best way I can describe it. It's weird. It's good. It's weirdly good. We so, mentioned Calcifer at the very beginning. Oh, Calcifer. The incomparable Calcifer. She likes my, my spark. spark. Oh, so good. I love him in the book, and I love him in the movie. It's still perfectly good in both forms. And it, it plays the exact same way at the end. He comes back like, why'd you come back? It looks like it might rain. And I missed you guys. <laughs> it's like, ah! And like that's another reason, like how they like hinted at that she was magical because when she gives him a piece of her hair and he like grows to like three times his size, mm-hmm. more like little hints like that that eh, she's magical. She's, yeah, she's almighty and powerful. Mm-hmm. And then when the witch of the waste becomes the little like daughter grandma, I was just like, I see fire, like <laughs> my heart is melting she becomes a way for sophie to show compassion that's that because if she was the big bad like in the book that would be a terrible end for her but as it stands in the movie she's more of a cautionary tale of what can happen to someone who gives into magic like that and her vanity yeah and it in it in the movie it's a little bit um like shows that hal is more clever than most uh, other magic users they even show that the uh the person who ends up taking the magic away from the witch of the waste that she is uh, she's kind of the big bad but she's not she's not she's more like a lawful evil or like a um yeah madame solomon is an amalgamation of Hal's mentor, who was Mrs. Pertzimmon, who was actually killed by the Witch of the Waste. And Hal spends, like, half the book mourning her. And the wizard, Sullivan, who is actually Ben Sullivan, also from Wales, who also figured out how to time travel. And it gives the appearance that all wizards were just men who figured out how to cross the streams and get to this world. (laughs) (laughs) Don't cross the streams, man. (laughs) I did not care for that character. She was invented to, to, to fill a void that the which the waste did not fill because they had changed her character arc too. The more you break it down, the more you have to change everything to fit the new structure. It's like playing a uh, Roman cube. Yeah. Um, or taking out all the blocks in Jenga. Yeah. So in the end, we have two totally different stories. We have one story about a man learning to love, I would guess, learning to open his heart and a woman his heart to be taken yeah and a woman coming uh into her own self-assuredness as as a as a beautiful woman who is capable of doing more and in the other story we have a woman who thinks that she can never amount to anything because of her position in life and through just sheer tenacity working her way up to a man who has been running from everything his entire life including commitment because whenever a girl loves him, he runs, uh, learning how to turn and commit to someone. So two totally different stories, which necessitate totally different plot elements. But I, again, reiterate that they're both good in their own right. And it's not like they threw away everything from the book to make this movie. The, everything is still connected. All the fibrous tissue is there. It's just telling a different story with these characters. It's like saying, you know, you've got bacon and then you've got sausage. Both of them are made from 
a pig and both of them are breakfast meats they both fry up very well they're both very tasty but they have a different kind of context or texture if you will that is a very good and very delicious metaphor also uh pancakes and waffles would work similarly oh yeah, yeah I like same more. same batter different presentation <laughs> would i say that one is better i i couldn't lose there's my girl I, I couldn't lose that moment. Oh, Sophie, your hair is starlight. Do you like it? Thanks. So do I. I couldn't lose those moments. But neither could I lose these moments of Sophie just attacking this house and everyone running from fear from her and Hal writing sonnets and working himself into his own curse accidentally. All the... It's... They're both... They're both good. All right. And so- I never did explain that love triangle twisty plot but just read the book if you want to understand it because i can't even think i don't think i would need one of those string diagrams to make it happen <laughs> all right so let's go ahead and wrap this up because i think we've talked about how the uh genius of Hal's moving castle plenty <laughs> i do have one point and then i have a question okay all right the point that i want to do is that they actually did a very special showing for diane win jones with Miyazaki like the two of them sat down and watched the movie together that's so cool um she had favorable she she received it favorably she had this I believe a nice quote about uh yeah she says movies are always different and it's a fact that book readers should accept and I think that's a really magnanimous way of handling that as a creator who lets another creator change her creation to just be aware that it's going to be different it's not going to be the same, but it seems like she enjoyed it. Hayao Miyazaki and Lauren Bacall, who I'm pretty sure played the Witch of the Waste, both longtime fans of each other's work, met at a subtitle screening in New York. Reportedly, Bacall jokingly asked Miyazaki if he was married. <laughs> so, my question, if you could have Miyazaki adapt uh, a novel that you like it doesn't have to be your favorite novel which you have a thousand favorite novels but if you could have Miyazaki adapt one of your favorite novels now remember Pals Moving Castle you have one story and he adapted it to another story how great that story was but it still was changed to fit the the movie so if you could take that and he would make changes and everything like that which book would you choose Rose Daughter by Robin McKinley. Okay, why? (laughs) So, Rose Daughter is a retelling of Beauty and the Beast, but it is also a retelling of a story that Robin McKinley wrote 30 years prior called Beauty. So, Robin McKinley was so fascinated with the story of Beauty and the Beast that she wrote this book when she was, like, in her 20s. And... 30 years later, revisited the original source material and says, wow, I was really young when I did this, and there are things I would never do again, and I would never dream of pulling it, because I want people to see the process, but I have such different ideas now, I am now ready to give everyone Rose Daughter. And Rose Daughter is full of this lush, orchestral um, descriptors. It's all about what this castle looks like in this book. It's all about the patterns on the carpets and the draperies and the sconces and the pattern tiled rose room and all these, all I'm thinking is just every one of these details becoming a drawing in a background of a Miyazaki movie. She takes a bath that has like 150 taps lined up around the edge of this swimming pool and that is the bath. I'm just imagining all of these lush details all being thrown into the Miyazaki pot and getting exploded everywhere. There's a tunnel inside her room that leads to under the ground where she starts uh, keeping injured bats to make them healthy. The they go up on the roof of the castle and the beast has learned to paint by holding a brush between his teeth and the ceiling, she talks about it, the roof of this castle just exploding in colors and fire and he's taken the night sky and just thrown it down on this rooftop. There's so much descriptors in this and it's it's very ethereal because the whole thing takes place over the course of seven days but they don't say that until the end and you made it, it you make think that oh this has been going on for months there's so much detail and things happening i'm thinking of miyazaki taking that and making all of these beautiful decorations and ornamentations of this 
female character interacting with this larger male character. Um, there's, I know it wouldn't be, I know it'd be different, but guess what? It's already different from the book she did 30 years ago. So I'm ready for another adaptation of the adaptation. I would be so interested in seeing what he would do with the Beauty and the Beast mythos today. So kind of like how the original, original, the thing was a classic in its own right and the 80s remake was good and how if they had actually remade the thing in its own right not just try to remake the 80s version that like kind of take the concept of the thing and explore it instead of take the concept of the 80s movie and explore it which is nothing there's there's nothing there so clearly Miyazaki took Dana Wynn Jones book and took the concept and explored it as opposed to just the only yeah, things that she wrote. I would even say that he took the concept and a lot of the interlying factors and explored that. He, there were some of the outerlying factors that he didn't. There was there were some key concepts that he kind of. I'm I'm not gonna do that. I'm gonna I'm gonna change some things. I'm gonna unweave here and then reweave it here. Girl cursed to be old goes to match wits with a womanizing warlock. Yeah, that's your premise. Go from there. I don't even call him womanizing entirely in the movie. Like, I, I think he starts that way to a ex- small, small extent. In the he's... book, they do a good job of saying that it was aunts, like the aunts of young girls who said, he'll eat your heart. Not literally. They just said that to scare the girls, and the girls all took it literally because aunts say weird things, and they all thought they actually did eat girls' hearts, but he just was a womanizer. Yeah. So then they took that and said, no, he actually does eat hearts because it's a wizard, and he never and does. They, they played a lot with the heart motif in this, like like giving the heart and taking of the heart and exchanging of the heart. So um, now uh, for my answer for this question, um, I don't remember the uh, original author, but I would say the Arcadians, um, yep. where it's uh, you have told me since you have read it, it's basically a retelling of a lot of Greek myths and some other myths mixed into um, where it's like not the Odyssey, but some of the other smaller ones. Um, it's basically the story of a kid who gets wrongly accused of um, stealing and he runs away and he encounters a talking donkey um, who is actually a guy who's been cursed by because uh, he he's a bard or a storyteller and he drank from a pool to, to get inspiration uh, for stories and it turns out that he was the he drank out of the wrong pool because it turned him into a donkey <laughs> uh, and then they meet a uh, a warrior princess I think is the best way to describe her. Uh, and then the three of them travel around uh, on various adventures. Now, there there is an overarching story to that. I'm I'm very oversimplifying it, um, but the main character starts off this very simple. He is uh, he's a bean counter basically, but he believes he is the best bean counter there's ever been. And it's it's so he's so endearing at first. <laughs> he um and. He like he's like oh I'm I'm so amazing at my job and then and then when this happens it's almost kind of devastating to him and he's like what am I gonna do and luckily there's a, a person that like watches like the animals that helps him out and he chooses to take the donkey with him because the donkey you know talks to him and it turns out that you know, it's a guy cursed but um, there's it there's got there's a, such a great cast of characters that come along throughout this whole this this whole story and again not realizing that it's retelling some classic greek myths um and there's some there's some characters that you meet at one point and then they come back later on and they kind of get interwoven within the story a little bit and there's there's like this uh, this barmaid who like hates the group for a little bit until she realizes that one of the group is like her long lost husband and <laughs> it's, it's hilarious. There's 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 a really big wit to this and there's a lot in this story and I think with how Miyazaki has a way with visuals and creating unique and diverse characters because. I would say about half of the main cast of characters, or, you know, you've got main three and then about 10 to 15 secondary characters, I would say about half of them are human or humanistic. He could have some real fun with this, and he loves anthropomorphic characters, so, and especially it would be nice to have a representation of a donkey that isn't Eddie Murphy. Oh, I was thinking of Bottom. 
Bottom is nice, but bottom is a man with a donkey's head. I guess that is true. Yeah. And then also there's the donkey from the Enchanted Forest Chronicles dealing with dragons. Oh, God. That also would be a really cool one, even though he's never done anything with dragons. We have discussed before how dealing with dragons needs to be adapted post-haste. Dealing with dragons is one of the best fantasy series that no one has ever heard of. Mm -hmm. Like, I seriously want to reach out to this author and be like, thank you for your work. You are an amazing author. I am so sorry no one else has ever heard of you. (laughs) I bet a lot of people have. Because I wanted to suggest Phantom Tollbooth, but I think that's too modern. He loves more fantasy, more ethereal stuff. I think Arcadians would be right up his alley. He he would have to change some of the story. He would have to change it a little bit, but I think that would be pretty good for him. And it's a a shorter book, so I think it'd be better for him. So plus we have Chuck Jones, Chuck Jones' version. And one day we will watch that. That will be a comparison. That's a marriage of the idea promise. <laughs> Stamp it. Date it. Whatever. So thank you again for uh, listening to us gush about how amazing Miyazaki and Howl's Moving Castle is. And thank you again to Audible, our reigning champ, and uh, Dragon Con Swag and Seek. They might be listening. We dropped a lot of Married to the Idea stickers all around that convention. Oh, yeah. That was another thing, too. Is that was a big thing that we gave away was our uh, Married to the Idea stickers. Um, we still have more. If you want one, just let us know. Yay. And we also have buttons, too. We have buttons and stickers. We so. want to stick you or stick you. Yes. Um, and we are about to head out on our lovely cruise we're looking forward to that but if you have any ideas we're coming up on a very special month we're both very much looking forward to it oh that's right halloween is fast approaching and don't at me that it's too early you should enjoy the pleasures that life has to offer you don't let anyone make you feel bad for enjoying a holiday if people can have already put up christmas decorations now that's a wrong thing that's bad (laughs) very bad 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 But until then, she's been Elizabeth. He's been Aaron. And And we're we're married married to to the idea. idea.